Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, as a young man, he was a magician. And by magician, I don't mean like pull a quarter out of your ear or a complicated card trick. I mean full on bodies levitating on a stage, crazy, how could he possibly do that kind of magic. And now, well, he's the star of Hades Town and many Broadway shows and television and film and how being a magician has informed everything we see him do on stage, well, that and so much more is revealed in this episode with Mr. Patrick Page. Enjoy. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is the extraordinary actor, Patrick Page. His Broadway credits include Hades Town, St. Joan, An Act of God, Spring Awakening, Casa Valentina, Cyrano de Bergerac, Spider-Man, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, A Man for All Seasons, Julius Caesar, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and The Kentucky Cycle. Some of his many television and film credits include Evil, The Gilded Age, Schmigadoon, In the Heights, Law and Order, Madam Secretary, The Substance of Fire, one of my favorite Robbie Bates pieces of of celluloid. Patrick is also a teacher and an advocate for mental health and hearing loss issues, among other things. And it is such an honor that I, who have admired you for so long and am so deeply in love with your voice, get to be conversational with you in person. So welcome, welcome, the extraordinary Patrick Page to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate that wonderful introduction. You know, it's funny, many moons ago, uh, an actor who was in the Kentucky Cycle subletted my apartment in New York City. I think his name is John Aylward. Oh, yeah, John Aylward. Um, And Kathy Heiler is an old dear friend of mine. So I was so aware of that show and the large Nicholas Nickleby ensemble size of it all. Um, And it got me thinking back to sort of that time. and, And then what a journey you've been on since then. Yeah, yeah. My, that was my first Broadway show. I know. And now I read One Million. So there you go. I'd love to just go back in time and then we'll and then we'll end in in present day, which which may find you filming The Gilded Age or Schmigadoon or on stage at Hades Town all at the same time. Um, can you talk a little bit about growing up and when you fell in love with with the arts and the performing arts and saw yourself somehow in it, not just an admirer of it, but as a participant in the art form of performing. Yes, well, I feel I was never out of it because my 
my dad was an actor and also a, a, a theater professor. So when I was a little boy, I spent my uh, summers when I was two, three, four years old at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon, where my father was an actor. And then uh, during the year, it, at that time, it was uh, only a summer festival. And uh, then during the year, my father directed plays, acted in plays, um, built sets, you know, made sound design, did everything as one does when one is a, yeah, you know, a teacher in a college. So uh, I grew up wanting to be on the stage, looking up there and thinking that that's where the fun was. And I think the first time I performed in a play with adults, you know, I used to put on plays in my basement with my little brother, always in a subordinate role so I could star. Um, but uh, I think, I, I really don't remember the very first time I was on stage with adults. Uh, I know dad did uh, some plays where he, he used me as a child. Um, Arthur Coppett's play, Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad. I played a Venus flytrap along with my brother. And then I played Winthrop in The Music Man and things like that. And then I think the first time I had sort of a, 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 a leading, and not leading, you know, but a, a large dramatic role was in a play called Summer Tree by a, a playwright named Ron Cowan, which was a, a, a Vietnam play. Uh, at the local community theater, which was a, a prestigious, you know, small community theater, which still exists in Santa Monica called Pentacle Theater. And um, so I was always uh, involved, always wanting to be there. And, uh, and always, I think, because of my dad, uh, sort of thinking of it, you know, in very, in, in very professional terms. In other words, although, although they were college and, um, community theater productions, I was holding myself to a very, a, what I considered to be a high, a high standard. You know, I, I would pride myself on being the first person off book. I remember the day that uh, the director of Summer Tree sort of tried to shame the other actors by saying, you know, if this nine-year-old boy can memorize all his lines, you can too. Um, so it was just always a part of my life. When your parents, was there a mother in your household as well? Yeah, and my mom um, was involved uh, more on the periphery in terms of like, she was there as support, you know? Mm -hmm. She would make a big pot of chili for the strike when we would all strike the set, you know? It was a family affair in that, in that sense and very much someone who was interested in theater and uh, wanted to go to the plays, but uh, was less involved. Uh, on the performance side. And did your dad sort of, do you feel like he was content being a part of a theater company? Uh, do you think he sort of supported you in, in the idea of doing it, you know, as an adult, as a profession? Do you feel like he wanted you to do something else or does it, did it all feel noble and like a really dignified way to spend your life? telling these stories? Um, well, I never had any question about the value of theater. That was very much uh, 
a given. I, I, I don't know that my dad necessarily thought, well, Patrick's having the career that I wished I could have had. Um, but he was very, very proud of my career. He passed away eight years ago. So there's a great, there's a, a, a number of things that I would have liked to him, him to have seen that he, that he, he didn't see while he was alive. But um, he, he, you know, he was just very proud. I think when I was first actually going into it as a profession, I think like most parents would be, he was terrified because it's like, uh, you know, he would, he gave me a book by uh, Robert Cohen, who, who was a, at the University of California, Irvine for years, and it was called Acting Professionally. And one of the things in the book was a, some statistic, and I forget what it was precisely now, but it was some terrifying statistic about the number of people in actors' equity who were working as opposed to the number who weren't. And it was something like, you know, four, three or four percent of people were actually working. And of that three or four percent, only, a, you know, a fraction of that were making uh, a living wage uh, enough to, uh, you know, to, to have an adult life, even a, even a school teacher's wage. So there were, you know, he, he was, he wanted me to be quite clear headed about what I was entering into. But I think that because as a theater professor, what he did, what, to some extent, was prepare students for uh, a life in the theater. And so he, one of the things he thought of as a responsibility of his was to not sugarcoat it for them, to let them know, look, if you think you're going to be an actor, the odds are stacked against you to such an astronomical extent that you should really think about something else. Um, now, I was very lucky because in my little community, I grew up in a little town called Monmouth, which had 3,000 people in it, I think at the time, maybe 2,000 at the time, very, very small, one stoplight. And, um, but my father had trained two actors who were both really remarkable, one named Rex Raybould, and one named Wayne Ballantyne. And they had both made it in my eyes because they both uh, had become leading actors at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. The Oregon Shakespeare was, Festival was at that time the largest regional repertory company in the country. It had, I think at the time uh, when I was in high school, uh, a company of something like 40 or 50 equity actors who were on 10 month salaries and you could have a life, you could be there, you could have a, a, a career, a life as a classical actor, a repertory classical actor. And that was all I ever aspired to. And so the fact that there were these two people who had done it, who had, I had one, not even one degree of separation from, I knew them both, um, I think emboldened me. So, First of all, I was thinking about as you sort of named the statistics from the Robert Cohn book, it's sort of the way people still get married, even though we know 50% of marriages end in divorce, there's, there's yes. this willingness to go, but not us, we're going to be the ones who made it. And by the way, um, 
you have a, a very celebrated relationship within the community with Paige Davis and everyone looks to you guys as sort of an example of working actors who love and perform together. So thank you for being a beacon for so many <laughs> in that way. I think you guys met in Beauty and the Beast, if I recall your- I We did, yes. First yes. date story on broadway.com or wherever you Yeah, did. thank you. Um, First of all, yeah, well, to your point, I mean, I, I, I remember my, my little 18 year old brain, my little 17 year old brain. I just remember thinking when I was given those terrifying figures, uh, uh, well, I'll be that 2% then. I mean, it's somebody, isn't it? And, and I, I, there was just something in my brain that was just like, okay, well, I'll be that then. And mm -hmm. Paige and I talk about it. We, we, we call it the cab in the rain theory because you know you have this theory that you can't get a cab in the rain, right? It's impossible to get a cab in the rain. And, but the, you can't get a cab in the rain because all those people are in the cabs. In other words, somebody got a cab in the rain. That's right. So I'll make it me, you know. But when I think about you, you're someone who got a cab in the rain in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Like that's, <laughs> that's how, you know, how slim the chances are, um, but somehow, you know, you are you are the the titular role. If you look at it, is you are Hades of Hades Town, right? Like the roads led to this moment that you had. You know, when you talk about your dad sort of seeing most of the things, um, the idea that you, for a very long time, were were as you described, a working actor. You were no longer. Um, well, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to assume this. When did you stop having a second job or some kind of job to pay bills? And what were the kind of crazy things that you did when, when your theater paycheck wasn't quite enough? Yes. I never had that kind of job. Um, my jobs were always, uh, what I did was, uh, I began working as an actor um, right out of college. And some, you know, paid very, very, very little, but then one would live on very, very little. Um, and then when I was between gigs, what I would do was I had, I created one man shows so that I could then take my show somewhere and book it and be paid to do what I was, what I felt I was good at and what I was, what I felt I was meant to do. Can I ask um, what the, um, the, what, what was the, if you look back to the first one, what were you writing about? The very, uh, uh, you know, my passion has been Shakespeare throughout my life. And um, the first, well, actually the first one man show I did was in, uh, when I was in high school and I needed to earn money. Uh, I was a magician and I had a, I had a full stage illusion show and I traveled with that and won some awards and uh, it was quite successful. And I think everyone in my hometown expected me to continue and to be a magician because my, my work as a magician was pretty large. I, I did large scale stuff, floating people in the air and cutting them in, in half and, Wait, that, when you were in high school? Yeah, when I was in high school. Okay, wait. And, um, you buried the lead here. 
I mean, a lot of kids can like take a quarter out of your ear or maybe figure out some card tricks, but, but the, the pen and teller version of what you're describing, like large scale tricks at that age, other than Bill Irwin, who, you know, has been on this podcast and we've sort of talked about his, his circus life and sort of his attraction to that sort of thing. Was there yeah. something in your life, like who, who introduced also, many magicians are very shy kids and they sort of come to yep. it. Can you just talk a little bit about how magic found you or you found it? Yeah, sure. Well, there used to be a TV show uh, in the 70s called The Magician with Bill Bixby, where Bill Bixby played a magician who solved crimes through his illusions. And he was sort of this... Uh, amateur sleuth, but he could do things that other people couldn't do. And he understood deception and illusion and misdirection in a way that allowed him to solve crimes. And uh, I just loved this show. And I remember the show had this wonderful opening music during which Bill Bixby would do card manipulations and dub manipulations. And I, I just thought I, something uh, just grabbed a hold of me. So I, you know, I said to my parents, I want to do this. And it started as, as it does with most little boys, I think at some point with a magic kit and I got the magic kit and I began to try to learn the cups and balls and which is that the oldest trick in the world, literally, quite literally the oldest trick in the world. And, um, and, you know, would take it to school and went, uh, uh, uh that was a really formative process for me because magic is pass or fail. You, it is not graded on a curve. I mean, to some extent, I suppose it is graded on a curve in terms of performance, but in terms of whether you fool somebody or don't fool somebody, it's pass or fail. Right. And so I would take my little tricks to school and sometimes I would, the person would know how it was done and I would be devastated and I would come home and learn that I had to practice more in front of the mirror. Right. Um, I remember my grandmother, it was, uh, not my biological grandmother, but uh, my grandma Agnes, who we called my grandmother. She was not my biological grandmother, but she was deaf. She was um, deaf from, I don't think birth, but I think from the time she was an infant. And um, so she, cause she didn't communicate, you know, she communicated in the ASL and, uh, and could be quite abrupt wonderful dear loving woman but she could be quite abrupt because of her, uh, of her language skills and so I would be doing some trick for her where I would pass a ball from one hand to the other let's say and she would simply grab the hand that the ball was in you know um and so I learned in that way you know uh I, I think I started to develop some skills that that were very good for me as an actor which was very, very deep preparation, very deep personal preparation in advance for whatever it is you're going to do. And that has certainly become one of the hallmarks of the way I work as an adult, as an actor. Um, and my wife, bless her heart, I mean, she, she has to put up with it because when, I, when I'm about to play a role, my life becomes about that for whatever the period of time it is. So if I, for example, now I'm, I'm about to play King Lear in February. So my life is about King Lear. And in terms of what I read, in terms of what I write, in terms of what I watch, it's study, um, it's learning lines, it's 
it's going deeply into um, into what particular type of dementia may be involved with so on and so on. Anyway, not to get too far off the well, but line, how, really, line of inquiry, but it was that yeah. thing of going in your room by yourself with a mirror and not coming out until you absolutely knew that it was perfect because in magic, it had to be perfect. So yeah, then that grew your... from... Oh, yes, oh sorry, Patrick. No, no, no. Finish your sentence. I apologize. No, no. That grew from this little magic kit into, uh, you know, and then I would do a birthday party and I got paid $15. And I was, oh, this is, uh, and I was always, I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. So I thought, well, if I can make $15, can I make more? And I would take the $15 and put that back into another trick for the show. And then my parents were wonderfully supportive, you know, um, because they would say, well, if he's doing this, then we'll support. So they'd say, well, if you spend your $15, we'll give you $15. And then now I get a big Matching trick. Grant. Yeah, they were. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so the show and so the show grew into this large, eventually full evening illusion show, um, which I could do a half hour of, 45 minutes of, an hour or two hours. Right. And um, and so to hold, and of course, in the big in the big two hour illusion show, you have you know a number of assistants. Um, I had uh, I raised doves, so I had at one time, I think about twenty doves in the backyard and fantail pigeons and rabbits, and, and so you learn a certain responsibility from that, which I, I don't think I was actually that responsible. I think my parents cut me a lot of slack and, and it helped me a lot but you know you do learn you have to care for things um you have to you have to meet the requirements of your booking you have to show up you have to manage people and and most of all you have to then hold the stage right uh essentially by yourself for whatever that period of time was and 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 in those days in the 70s usually without a mic so you'd be holding like a 600 seat house uh, without a mic for 45 minutes or an hour. And I think that sometimes people will comment on a, a certain kind of ease I might have on stage, which I certainly don't have in life. And, and I think it, it comes from that, that that was sort of my space where I was in control, you know? Well, I want to, I want to, um, I want to, I mean, first of all, we have to do another episode just about the magic and there needs to be a visual component and some of the tricks need to be seen. But I do, before we move on, did you have a name, a magician name that was different than your name? In a way, yes, because I used the name Patrick Page, whereas at home, at school, everyone called me Pat. Okay, so- But as voice, was no This voice that, that, so there were tricks captivating an audience and and the discipline and the time spent as you've described. And then there's this voice, this singular voice that you've also become known for um, kind of globally with Town, but obviously for Broadway lovers and musical theater lovers and Shakespeare lovers, whether you are speaking or singing, your, um, your mastery of your voice. I mean, look, you have been, you have this God-given gift of this voice that you were born with and then it sounds to me like the discipline and time spent to learn it really well 
um, so that you can use it how you want to use it. When did you become aware um, that you had one of the most uniquely beautiful, compelling voices, um, I guess, on planet Earth? When did oh, that? That's so nice. <laughs> when did that um, become your? Well, my dad, my dad had a a, a beautiful voice, um, which. Uh, I think so there is an inherited factor um when we when I would answer the phone very frequently they would think it was my dad um so there was a similarity in our voices there I do think that all those years of uh of doing um the magic show the other thing that I did in high school and in college um which took up an enormous amount of my emotional and intellectual bandwidth was competitive speech and debate. And so um, uh, uh, that was also uh, obviously using one's voice. Um, and then as I began to realize that my, my as you see, I don't think in high school I knew the full extent that uh, 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 the way Shakespeare would necessarily shape my life. But when I got out of high school and went to college, it became clear to me, and you alluded to this a bit when you said, you know, would this be a worthwhile way to spend your life? Uh, I had this sort of crossroads with magic and acting. Um, I went to a, a school called PCPA Theater Fest in Santa Maria, California, which was to train actors. And it was two years. And at the end of that two years, the idea was that one would then go to one of the major league training programs. There was a group of 10 schools called the league schools, and they were Juilliard, Yale, University of Washington, so on. And you would audition for these, and they were the conservatory programs. Uh, the league doesn't exist anymore. But if you went to one of these schools, that was you know how you made your way into the business. And I think if I had gotten into Juilliard or Yale, I think I would have gone, but I didn't get into those schools. And so I had this sort of awakening of like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to study acting for another four years. I wanted to study English literature and history. And so I went to uh, Whitman College in, in Walla Walla, Washington, which was, is a, was and is a, an exceptional liberal arts college and was small. It was important to me that I be in a small place. At this time in my life, I was, you know, I was just really terrified of big cities, big schools. So they had 1,200 students at the perfect, I got a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. And I went there and that, that was when I began to study Shakespeare in depth more, I think. Um, so that I had a comprehensive knowledge uh, of the canon. And, and it became clear to me like, oh, if you can, if this is what you're doing with your life, this is a very worthwhile way to spend your time on earth. So that, kind of decision of well, will I go into magic full-time professionally because those the, 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 that was open to me mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, and I and I certainly made a lot more money at it. It was quite lucrative, actually. That's so um, it yeah. was it was how I paid for my school. It was uh, how I paid for everything. Um, so to leave that aside and then to say I'm going to be an actor, and I, I uh, so I I began. Um, at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in uh, 1984. So when I read your Broadway credits, um, there were a lot of musicals on the list. Um, and I'm curious, by the way, how thrilling that you're going to do King Lear. And I hope you'll come back once you're not just thinking about the part, but doing it in earnest, because that will be thrilling, the full circle of all of it, right? The idea of that's what I want to do. And and obviously there was plenty, you know, Julius Caesar. I mean, there were things that you've gotten to do on Broadway, but I, but I do want to just honor the fact that this thing that you loved and at this crossroads chose that in very few months, the world is going to get to see you do. So that's just, by the way, that's bravo. Very excited about that. Can't wait to see it. Um, you sing as well. So, uh, you know, if I think of, of you and Beauty and the Beast and you and Hadestown, like the common thread is your singing, um, mm. but the characters are very different and sort of hold stage very differently. So I want to ask you, if you look back um, and you're sort of in the middle of everything, which is very exciting, um, you're still a, a, a moderately young person and there's so many years ahead of you, but there was, do you feel like you know where the lucky break was that took you from Walla Walla and brought you to Broadway in the way that, like, what was the lucky, if you had to say, you know what happened? Obviously I was prepared and I worked my butt off, but this happened and that's why I have this Broadway career. Yeah, well, there are a number of them, right? Yeah you look back and think, well, if this hadn't happened, could that have happened? Could, and you just never know. Yeah, well, the domino. When, when I was um, in college in, in, at Whitman, a notice went up on the call board and it was for the Utah Shakespeare Festival and said they were looking for people. And they, it was a, it was, uh, it was not an equity house, although they had uh, uh, equity guest artists, two or three or four a season, but the rest of the actors were actors who were uh, from training programs. So I went to the uh, professor who ran the theater training program at Whitman, and I asked him if if uh, he thought I might be able to audition, and he said no, they didn't. They didn't take people from Whitman. They they took people from Juilliard and Yale and University of Washington and so on the, from the league training schools, which I had decided not to go to. Um, and, uh, and but I had been accepted to a couple of them, and I was accepted to the University of Washington. So somehow, whether it was out of stupidity or out of arrogance, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm probably a, some kind of magical uh, combination of both. I I had the chutzpah to call the director of the training program at the University of Washington and say, may I audition? Since, since I was good enough to be in your program, even though I didn't come to your program, may I audition with your students for the Utah Shakespeare Festival? And I think he was so thrown by the question because it was so uh, uh, out of bounds of that he didn't, he, he didn't say no. He just yeah. kept saying, well, there won't be time. 
And I kept saying, well, if there is time, may I? And anyway, I didn't take no for an answer. And on the day of the audition, I drove five hours to Seattle and I went and I crashed the audition essentially. And, uh, and, that, and then I was accepted into that company. And that was my first professional job in 1984 at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. And then I, I returned there each summer for six seasons. And that was where I played my first uh, leading Shakespeare parts. I played Richard III, Macbeth, Iago, Brutus, Don Armando. Um, so it was, uh, it was an incredibly formative time for me. And I have so many fond memories from that theater. And then, and then from that theater, I then went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which had been my destination. And I stayed there for a couple of seasons and then had this restlessness to see what else I might be able to do. Went out and did a bunch of regional theaters. And one of the regional theaters was Seattle Rep. Well, no, it was, um, it was uh, ACT in Seattle. And while I was at ACT in Seattle, uh, I had a meeting with the man who ran the Intamon Theater in Seattle, whose name is Warner Shook. And Warner was directing the Kentucky Cycle. And he gave me the script and uh, thought there might be something in it for me and he might be able to get me an audition. He did get me an audition. I did do the audition and I was accepted into the Kentucky Cycle. And that's how I came to New York. So it was certainly, wow. it was that, that, I, I don't, I don't, I'm certain that I would not have come to New York of my own volition without someone picking me up and, and right, bringing me and bringing yeah. you there. Um, yeah. When you, uh, when you came into the Kentucky cycle, again, everything you've talked about, Shakespeare, regional theater, there still was not a musical. So, oh, yeah. so, so I just want to know how yes. that, so then you're like, Hey guys, I well, see during, so, so during that, that was 19, the end of 1993. And uh, I did some more regional work in 1994, around in there, out of New York, doing the best I could, doing my one-man show a little bit. And one of the things you do when you're, you know, trying to build a career at the beginning of your career in New York is just take meetings, meet as many people as you can. And one way to do that is to be a reader in auditions. So if the listener doesn't know what a reader is, the reader is the person who in uh, any audition situation reads the other part in the scene uh, across from the person who's actually auditioning. So there was a major casting director named Jay Binder who passed away recently. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful casting director. And he was casting the national tour of Angels in America. And I had an audition for that. And I went in and auditioned uh, for the understudy roles. It was, it was to understudy Joe and Lewis. So if you know Angels in America, you know that's pretty tough, that the two characters are quite different. And so I wasn't quite Joe, I wasn't quite Lewis. I went, anyway, I, I fell right between two chairs. I wasn't right for the part, but I, I have been right enough that I was auditioning again with other people for quite a long time. I wanna say half the day or something, I was in there reading with people. And at the end of that day, Jay said, look, Patrick, this isn't gonna work for this show. He said, but I just lost my reader 
for tomorrow, I'm doing auditions for the national tour of Beauty and the Beast, the first national. And uh, I need a reader. Would you like to be the reader for that? And it meant, of course, that I got to spend the entire day with a major casting director. So even though I was not attracted by the material and I didn't think of myself in terms of doing musicals at all, I said, yes, immediately. And I went home and I watched the movie. In those days, you went to Blockbuster, got a videotape. I went to Blockbuster, got the videotape, watched the movie, and came in the next day. And I was reading opposite all the people who were auditioning. And uh, someone came in to audition for Lumiere. And uh, I was reading Cogsworth opposite them in this sort of, I suppose, uh, Smothers Brothers, Laurel and Hardy type pattern routine that they do back and forth. And uh, at one point, Jay said, switch parts. So we switched parts. And, And the other actors seemed quite perplexed by it. And uh, I'd love today to know who the actor was. I probably know them, but I don't remember. And uh, anyway, at the end of it, um, Jay sent the other actor out of the room and he said, you know, you could play this part. And I said, oh no, it's not for me at all. I don't do this sort of thing, you know. Uh, And he said, no, you, you really should think about it. He said, come here, come here to the piano, sing the song. So we went over to the piano to sing Be Our Guest. And I'd heard it the night before. And I, of course, knew that Jerry Orbach was doing essentially a version of Marie Chevalier. And so I did that. But I was very, very, very uncomfortable singing. And, you know, if you know the song, it's it's not terrifically difficult to sing. But, um, but I, you know, struggled through it. And... At the end of it, Jay said, uh, because I had quite a phobia about singing, actually. And at the end of uh, doing that, Jay said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire you a coach tonight. You go to the coach <laughs> for the singing. You come back tomorrow and you sing for the director and the producer. So I did. <clears throat> actually, I went home, called my agent and said, you've got to get me out of this. I don't want to do this thing. <laughs> she said, just, just do it. Just do it. It'll be good. You know, yeah. so I went and I did it. And, um, and then I got a call back and then I so saw, I'm now calling my agent saying, please, you've got to get me out of this thing. I do not want to dress as a candlestick. I see. I had visions of Disney on ice, you know, um, I'm, a, I, 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 just played Hamlet and Richard second and Macbeth. I, I really don't want to do this. And she said, darling, just, just go. It doesn't hurt you to go for the callback. It's just go for the callback. So I went for the callback. And the callback for this, you know, was just like nothing I had ever seen in my life. It was a table of at least a dozen people making decisions, choreographer, associate choreographer, director, associate director, uh, producer, associate, just all of these people, room filled. And I could, because I didn't want the part, I think I was very relaxed and I, they start laughing and laughing and they're just laughing and they look and then I do the song and they keep trying to get me to hit the final note and I can't hit the final note. And they keep trying to see if I can hit it. I, I never quite get it. So I leave. And uh, then I got the offer to play the part. And um, what I didn't know, what my agent had not told me was the, the, the difference in pay between doing a play and doing a musical. Um, or perhaps it was between 
being in the ensemble, which I had been in the ensemble in Kentucky Cycle and having a principal part. Anyway, it was more money than I'd ever thought I'd be paid uh, per week. And then in those days, uh, I don't know how the tours are nowadays, but it was also quite a generous per diem. So one could essentially live on one's per diem and bank your check. So I said, all right. And, uh, and I did it and I started doing it. I started enjoying it. I was very panicked at first. I thought for sure I was going to be fired in the first week because I'd read somewhere that they could fire you in the first week. They didn't have to buy your car, but after that, they were stuck with you. I don't know if that's true or not, uh-huh. but it's what I believed at the but time. that's what you were living with. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so that I get out on the road and now I'm starting to have a good time. And of course, then I meet Paige um, and, uh, in the, during the tour. So, uh, and we began our relationship. And so that made the tour, you know, quite heavenly. So, then we stayed out there for a bit, and then I was offered the role on Broadway. So then mm-hmm. I came to New York and played it on Broadway, and then from there, I I, I then was uh, uh, offered the Lion King on Broadway, and things went from there. And on, I mean, Scar, all of these. I mean, you were in the Disney family, and then and then beyond. Um, I want to, ask- you know, that I I should give a shout out because there there's a. Uh, there's kind of this narrative out in the world now that I, I have such difficulty with, which is that the sort of decision makers uh, behind the scenes on Broadway are, are, are this group of abusive, terrible people. I keep sort of hearing this going around. And when you say family, it, it really was a family for me at Disney. And the very top of that family was producer Tom Schumacher, who was who went out of his way to be so kind to me, to make opportunities when I, for example, when I was doing Beauty and the Beast and when I was doing Lion King. And they knew that, you know, I had, uh, that I, I really wanted to be a, a classical actor and that I was doing this also. And so when I had an opportunity to play Serena de Bergerac or Iago or uh, something, they would uh, turn like, off the time for me to leave the show and to come back to the show. And um, and they worked with my career as opposed to stopping it in its tracks. And I was just so grateful for that. I want to ask you, when you talked about your your adopted grandmother, Agnes, and, and that she knew American Sign Language, and it sounds like you certainly understood it, whether or not you also signed, I was thinking about you being in Spring Awakening um, and wondered, did you, were you someone who knew how to do ASL as a young person because of Agnes, or did you have to learn it uh, when you were cast? No, I mean, my dad was fluent in ASL. Really? Yeah, and I, one of my regrets is that I didn't learn. Right. Well, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I can't blame my little 12 year old self for not saying, daddy, teach me. You know, I had a little 12 year old brain, brain that was yeah. interested in other things, but yeah. it, I, I, I would love now to be uh, fluent. I, I feel that what set, you know, I have, I have quite severe hearing loss and I think what separates me you know, from the deaf community is, is my inability to uh, 
to speak the language. And um, I, I try to learn as much as I can. But for example, the other night I was meeting with a deaf friend and, you know, I, it's, it's just, it's a barrier for me. It's a, a language I don't, I don't speak well at all. And I wish I did. Well, that's a really elegant segue, actually, because uh, I don't think as much as you have been, you know, once you had a platform and continue to have a platform um, because of your respect and popularity that you've garnered as an actor, you were so vocal about mental health and, and so honest about your own journey with medication and, and discovering, you know, where you were, um, with depression and just so honest and open about it. And that has meant so much to so many people um, for Hades to, you know, to come out and, and describe his own vulnerabilities, like extraordinary for so many people of all ages. And now when you describe your hearing loss, I don't know that that's something a lot of people know. And as a singer and a performer, you know, it's sort of like a painter developing arthritis or issues with their hands and getting just so scared about it. What does it mean for my creative process? So if if it is all right with you to share a little bit about what that has meant to you and how that has affected or impacted your, your ability to perform in the way you want to, um, mm -hmm. anything you care to share, I'd be so honored if, if you would speak to that. Yeah. Um... You know, we all have different strengths and different um, vulnerabilities. Um, I began to lose my hearing probably in my mid to late 30s. And it was manageable. And I just thought, oh, you know, I have a little, little hearing loss, big deal. Um, and then over time, it became less manageable. And I was began to be able to not be able to follow conversations, certainly not be able to follow conversations in crowded spaces with background noise. Um, and whenever I would work on film and TV, I would realize I, I, I couldn't hear my partner at all. Um, and I, I think as a lot of people with hearing loss do, I, I, uh, I've noticed this in myself when I, when I have dealt with people with hearing loss, like my mother, as she lost her hearing when she got much older than I am, uh, I noticed an impatience on my part with her. Um, and so I, I, I realized that I was, you know, as I lost more and more hearing, uh, I would be impatient with other people for not, for not speaking louder, uh, for not being, uh, for not speaking clearly enough. It never occurred to me that it might be me. It might be my hearing loss. And you were know? you nervous about admitting out loud and saying, hey, could you speak a little more slowly or loudly? Or can we come over to this part of the room? I'm experiencing hearing loss. Were you worried about the impact on your career if you talked about it out loud? Or were you not even able to be articulate about it in the moment? wasn't that conscious of it right. um so I was, I was just like oh these damn tv actors they don't speak up they don't have they don't understand. voice they're not speaking loud enough you know uh, everybody's whispering on tv but then eventually it got to the point where i'm like wow i'm really i i can't hear i i i'm just i can't i can't hear 
And um, so then I visited an audiologist for the first time in, I want to say 2017, 2018. And, um, and then, you know, obviously my hearing loss was diagnosed, became evident how severe it was. Um, and, you know, because you don't, when things happen gradually, you don't know, you know, it's like the boiling, the, the metaphor of boiling the frog, you just keep putting one degree more in the water and the frog doesn't know the water's getting hot. Um, terrible metaphor, isn't it? Um, but, but that was what it was like, is that I, I, I wasn't aware. And when, I'm, and when you're not aware, this is true of everything in life, when you're not aware of yourself, you tend to blame others. So uh, that's what I was doing. And uh, then I realized, oh no, it's me. Now at that point, now I'm getting hearing aids and uh, having my hearing aids prescribed and, and uh, adjusted by the audiologist. And I, I, uh, I wear different kinds depending on the situation. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I began to be more conscious of my hearing loss. And, and at that point, then I began to share it with people. So now if I'm on a set, I will. So for example, I'm shooting Gilded Age this week, but I haven't shot for a month or maybe six weeks, maybe more, man. Maybe I haven't shot for two months. Anyway, so I'll be shooting some this week. So what I'll do is I'll go around to the assistant director and uh, to, uh, to the people involved who need to know and say, just a reminder, you know, that I, I have hearing loss. I may not hear you. You may need to be aware of my hearing aids. If I'm in full profile, let me know. Let me know where the camera is so I can take out that hearing aid so we don't have it in the shot. Um, and just communicate with people more. And, and so, for example, with Hadestown, just last night, you know, I, I was saying to the sound is the sound designers for Hades Town were extraordinary. They absolutely deserved the Tony that they won for the sound design of that show. And one of the things that they did was to work specifically with my hearing loss and with my hearing aids to make sure that I could hear my voice um, during the show. Um, and, and Sometimes if, if there's a lot going on musically, you know, a bunch of instruments, a bunch of voices, the hearing aids, as sophisticated as they are, they can't quite yet do what the human ear can do in terms of separating all those sounds from each other. And so it can be hard to uh, find a pitch sometimes. Um, so as I was saying just this week, I was talking to one of the, sound engineers and saying, you know, if it, uh, I think I need more, but I'm not sure I just changed the batteries in my hearing aid. So for example, I don't know if I need more from them or if I need to adjust the, um, my hearing instrument. Um, so there are challenges. There's certainly challenges involved. And I, I definitely think uh, 
that there may come a point where I'm not able to do musicals anymore. I'll be able to do right. other right. Uh, uh, other plays and, and television things. Um, and you just try to keep a, a good attitude about it. I don't know. I know that I had, I, ha I had and have a lot of social anxiety, which is based a lot of it in my inability to hear. So if we're in a, in a social situation, in a room with more than three or four people, it's unlikely that uh, even with my hearing aids in, I'll be able to follow the conversation fully. It's just for people listening at home who are on this journey. Is there a specific brand of hearing aid that you use that you recommend? Obviously, everyone's doctor is going to help them find the right choice for them. I also just read that hearing aids are going to become available over the counter in some, uh, there's some policy going forward about that. But can you just tell me what hearing aids you use specifically? Yeah. Um... Oh, in, in, in consultation with my audiologist, we um, decided that the Widex moment hearing aids were the best ones for my use because they're very small, very discreet, um, but they're also, they have a, a wide range of sound. You know, before we, we finish, um, and please come back, please come back because we've scratch the surface uh, on so many extraordinary parts of your life um, on stage and off. How many performances at this point have you done of Town? They, you know, they tell us that every night. They say, this is performance number such and such and such and such. Do you have a, a I, estimate for you? Because obviously- I, so, I, so, I would job. guess, I think that we've done about 600 on Broadway and uh, uh, then we did, two or three months in London. And uh, uh, of course I did the production in Canada and the production off Broadway. So I would say it's probably around 750 maybe. Okay, so so that's a good round number, 750. Um, you know, I, I usually end the episode with asking someone for a little known fact, but you've been so generous with so many incredible facts about your life. The doves alone, raising doves alone as a child. Can you, can you share then with me, what does this role and this show mean to you? 750 performances later, you're still showing up every night. And for most people, there's a big repeat audience because the show is so beloved, but for most people, they're seeing it for the first time. Um, and I know you know that when you go out there. So what what does it mean to you to, to be in this show still and give that to someone for the first time tonight? Yeah. That would happen. I, this show is unique in my career in the way audiences personalize the material for themselves. And they, many of them who are, as you say, seeing the show for the first time on Broadway, nevertheless come and already have a relationship with the material through the album. And it just feels like such a, 
a privilege, such an honor to be in something, like to be part of their story. I get a lot of um, messages on Cameo and Instagram and Twitter and so on of people say, you know, who say, my wife and I have a Hades and Persephone relationship, or my, my, my girlfriend and I are Eurydice and Orpheus, or um, uh, I was, saw a video of uh, a couple who did the choreography, the dance choreography that Hades and Persephone do when they reunite in, in Hades town, they dance that dance at their wedding, or they use wedding song at their wedding. And the, 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 the love story of Hades town becomes part of their love story. And not, not, not for a handful of people, for a lot of people. And I can see them in the house. I see them holding hands. I see them leaning against each other. Sometimes they uh, have come in costume. Sometimes, uh, and I just think, it, and, and sometimes when I've met people on the street, the reaction that they have to meeting me is quite extraordinary. It, it's clear that they're not meeting me because I would not generate that response from them. They're meeting the Hades that they heard in their headphones that went in their ear. They're meeting a kind of a, a character that's meaningful to them, um, a, 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 a series of insights that Aeneas Mitchell gave to the world that, that were meaningful to them. So, I think this about all shows that I'm in. You know, this is my little pitch. Recently, Jesse Green wrote an article for the New York Times, and it was an article that was questioning the proposition that the show must go on, and uh, uh, which has been a conversation that's been going on on Broadway. Is you know, uh, should should we look at this? Should we look at this credo and see what the value of it is, or whether it's it's outgrown its usefulness? And in the article, there was no mention of the audience. And I thought to myself, well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the guy that says the show must go on. If I'm not there on that stage, that means I'm either do, making some other work for you, or there was some reason that I absolutely could not make that show that night. Um, and... It, it won't be because I had a bad day. It, it won't be because uh, I'm depressed. It won't be. Um, it, it, I'll make it there. It won't be because I have the sniffles. I'll be there. I'll be there. And why will I be there? It's because of those people. It's because the audience has come to Broadway, the very, very pinnacle of theater in the world, and it's such a special event for them. They've spent hundreds, frequently thousands of dollars. They've traveled long distances. They've looked forward to it. They've marked their calendars. They've listened to the album. And we are, we're servants. We get to be there for that. We get to be part of their love story. And that's why the show has to go on. 
the show has to go on because it's that important. It's a kind of medicine. It's a kind of uh, spirit, spirituality. And, um, and, and of course, the understudies are extraordinary. And, and, and we've all seen understudy performances that have, have, have made our mouths gape with their magnificence. But if we're honest, we must all admit that our hearts sink a bit when that when we open the playbill and that little white piece of paper flutters out, and we find out that the person that we heard on the album is not in the show that night. So that's why the show must go on. The show must go on for the reason that Carol Channing said, the reason that Marion Selda said, the reason Ethel Merman never missed a show, because they come to see us, and that makes us important in a way. Um, but important as servants. We are, you know, Shakespeare said, we'll strive to please you every day. I think that's a great thing to have on a tombstone. We'll strive to please you every day. Patrick Page, thank you for being on the podcast today. What an honor and privilege to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.